So a story we talk about a lot in Thought Exchange is that a waiter comes up and says, what would you like to drink? And people say, I don't know, I'd like a beer. Sure, give me a beer. Yeah, I don't know, beer. And then someone says, well, it's the first sunny day of spring. It's really beautiful. Don't you make great margaritas here? I'd really like a margarita. Someone else in the group says, ooh, I'd also like a margarita. Yeah, you know what, me too. You know what round of margaritas, except for one person sticks to their beer mate. The point of that story is that the thing that didn't happen is that people don't then stop and say, sorry, you guys can't all get a margarita. You said beer six or seven times. That's the most frequent thing that got said. And therefore, you have to stick with it. I'm Dave McLeod. I'm the CEO and a co-founder of Thought Exchange. This is Code Story, a podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead a team that has your back. I'm your host, Noah Laphart, and today how Dave McLeod took a face-to-face concept and digitized learning from mass amounts of people. All this and more on Code Story. As an interesting turn to the guest I have on the podcast, Dave McLeod is not a technologist by trade. He is a serial entrepreneur and an old-school face-to-face facilitator who cares a lot about what people have to say and feel. He came out of college having taken every course under the sun and getting zero degrees, which prepared him perfectly to be a consultant. He lives in a small ski town called Rossland in British Columbia, and it's important to him to be a good dad, a good son, and a good member of his community. Along the way, he got to do some interesting and complex work where he heard voices representing many different viewpoints. In doing this, he picked up some facilitation techniques to figure out what was important within the diverse groups of people he was working with. And then he got hooked up with some people building software to solve a similar problem. This is the creation story of Thought Exchange. I wasn't a technologist. I wasn't into software at all, actually. I had a consulting company where I, I did a lot of face-to-face facilitation. as the person that people would hire to have a large conversation with 100 people or, or any sort of large group collaboration event. I did a lot of those things. Along the way of doing that sort of work, I got to do some really interesting and really complex kind of work where we'd have to hear voices that represented a lot of different interests. One of the most compelling ones was in how a province has to spend money. Province, that's Canada for all of you listening from the States, just a you know Canadian province. It's like a state, only Canadian. <laughs> <laughs> Good clarification. So yeah, I, I was facilitating these large group meetings. I was trying to innovate and trying to hear back from people. Imagine a couple hundred people in a room and you had to figure out what matters to that group of people. And along the way, I picked up a facilitation technique called 35, and it's basically recipe cards. How it works is that it doesn't matter the size of the group that can fit in a room. You ask everyone to say, what's something really important that we talk about today? Everyone writes it down on their own recipe card, and then they shuffle them around the room. You don't have your name on them. You shuffle those cards around the room, and then you stop and everyone rates them. You shuffle and rate and shuffle and rate and shuffle and rate. By the time you've done that, you have the highest rated ideas rated by the whole group, and you start counting backwards. And the ones that got the highest rating um, were the ones that we ended up focusing the conversation around. 
The thing that was really common is that people felt like it was a fair process. It didn't matter how many times an idea got shared. If it was a really great idea that got shared once, it might come to the very top. And doing that, it actually helped create lots of buy-in and great insights for a group in a room using recipe cards. Then a, a friend of mine, Lee White, who was one of the executive directors of Outward Bound, said, you know, this, is, this technique that you're using is really similar to something that a friend of mine is building in software to find a way to harness collective intelligence, building wisdom of crowd software to help do digital recipe cards to figure out en masse how you can learn from a thousand people or 10,000 people what's important. And famously, I thought to myself, nah, I'm not really a software guy, not that interested. Also famously, Lee went to Jim and said, hey, here's this guy, he's running around in his car with recipe cards in his trunk. I think you guys should meet because uh, you're onto a similar thing, but he's doing it face to face and you're building in software. And Jim famously thought, nah, <laughs> I don't see the connection, not interested. <laughs> Luckily for the perseverance of Lee, he's like, well, you know what, you probably should. And eventually both sides agreed. And I went to the first beta release of the dev team showing their first iteration of some, at the time it was called thought stream as a way to harness the wisdom of crowds i both loved it and hated it instantly I, I got instantly the power of having an infinite supply of recipe cards translated every language around the world i also thought there's a lot of problems to here to fix to actually make a product that's going to solve problems like an actual recipe card does that's when I, I started working for the company for, for no shares, no cash. I just agreed to do some business development and we'd figure it out later down the road. Well, tell me about the MVP, so to speak, right? Tell me about that first product or maybe even the product after you jumped in, you decided or you saw that, hey, there's a lot of problems to fix. Tell me about that product, how long it took to build and what sort of tools was used to bring it to life. So Jim and the team uh, that came out of a company in BC called Creo had built a flash version as rapidly as possible of a way to gather thoughts. And that first MVP was, was both exciting and very wrong. It was really built for people in the room to facilitate and it was really built really quickly. And we subscribed very strongly to the lean startup and the idea that we're gonna fail fast and learn as much as possible. And so, yeah, we, it was built originally to talk to 15, 20 people in a room. That, within a month or two, got changed into something we called Express, so we could send it out via email and invite hundreds in. And we just found every way to fail as fast as we possibly could uh, out there with as many customers that would be willing to try out this, this way of having a conversation with a group of people. As you're going through that process, you're making certain decisions and trade-offs, right? About, okay, we're going to start this small, or we're going to try this next, or we're going to take on this sort of technical debt the product or, or trade-off. So tell me about some of those that you had to make in the short term at that time and how you coped with those decisions. So some of those trade-offs where we built this flash version of the product that was highly in need of humans to do all sorts of things. We were grouping and theming thoughts with real people. We were setting things up with real people. And the trade-offs were always sort of how much technology we were, were we gonna wrap into a solution when we weren't sure the product market fit and how much people power should we put in knowing that at some point we need to actually build a SaaS solution. 
So all the way through the first year of the company, we really focused on working with customers, putting whatever people were, we had nights where we were all as a company grouping and theming thoughts together so that the software wouldn't break when we were doing a large public consultation. And it was very non-scalable and very crazy, actually, the way we were doing it. But we just knew we had to put people in before we actually really understood deeply what people needed the product to do. So we, we were constantly, how much software do you build? How many people do you put in? How much investment money do you put into R&D? And how much do you focus on customer feedback? I think was the consistent conversation um, from everybody on the team. So a few years in, we actually rebuilt the entire platform, of course, threw everything away in Flash. And once we were confident that we had a solution that would scale and didn't require people, and you know you could have a conversation in five minutes, not five weeks, we very bravely threw out all the code and rebuilt the entire tool to be mobile first and a proper SaaS platform, which did slow us down from a customer you know, revenue point of view, but in the long term was the right decision for the company. Let's actually dive into that a little bit. My next question is around, you know, product progression and maturation. So, you know, how did you progress the product at that point? Sounds like you did a, a rewrite, um, but dive into that a bit. And I'm interested also in, you know, how did you decide what was the next most important thing to build and, and establish your roadmap? I talk sometimes to some startup founders and things like that, and, and I tell them the, the one thing to do is absolutely don't do what we did. We had a solution and we went out looking for a problem, which you know any, anybody will tell you is the wrong way to build a product unless uh, you happen to find that problem uh, really quickly, fast enough. We burnt through a lot of cycles because we had the solution, which was to scale a conversation and to have a discussion with a thousand people and learn what they think. That would be something that, of course, we'd believe everybody in the world would want. The truth was only some people wanted it some of the time, and we needed to find those people and that fit. And the market had to come also to appreciate the fact that hearing from people digitally was, was really valuable. The reason I say all that, because as we went through building the product, we had different customers in different market segments. We were in corporations. We were in the public sector. We worked with dozens at that time and now hundreds of school districts. And we were always trying to listen to requirements for what they had to solve the problems that they were up against. And so that required us to think pretty deeply about who is our real customer here? Who's our user? Who's the one who pays the bill? And how to build features for both the people that were using the product, sometimes public, sometimes employees way down in the organization, and who were the people paying the bills, the leader of these large organizations or the leaders in the corporations, and how do you balance tools for the people that are paying the bills and the people who are utilizing the product? And that, I mean, that battle goes on to this day. Well then, okay, so you got, you know, how you're building your roadmap, how you're balancing those things, and it's a constant balancing act, I get, I get that. But let's switch over to, to team then. So you've got a roadmap, right? You've got a ton of stuff that you have worked through to figure out what are the things that you want to build. How did you build your team? And, and what did you look for in those people to indicate that they were the winning horses to join you? So I think there's, there's two topics here in how you build a team that are are relevant in today's tech environment that I won't step over. So one is that the first people on the team are the people crazy enough to join you with your idea that's not really clearly understood in the marketplace and not really well funded from a runway point of view. 
your runway is always in weeks or months. And so you end up having a group of people who believe in you probably from a past experience. So we were fortunate to have a really amazing team coming from Creo software development team that had worked together for many years. And we were able to get that cohort together to build a really strong engineering foundation from past projects. And that's both amazing and also creates a really interesting issue. And it's one that I see, I guess, across almost every tech company in the world is that the, that group of people, as you've worked together in your past and you've built trust, you probably also have a similar group of people on LinkedIn and you probably have a pretty similar gender and you probably have a pretty similar color of skin as well. And so there's no mystery to how founding teams of a lot of white dudes, uh, myself being one of them, you know, I'm, my name's Dave, I'm six foot one, I'm a CEO. There's three CEOs in the Fortune 500 who are African-American. There's more CEOs named Dave than there are women in the Fortune 500 in many different studies. And I happen to be six foot one, which is the aggregate height of a CEO in the Fortune 500. I understand that I'm I'm a privileged white person. And what happens is that you build a team with people around you in your network. And so the answer, there's two answers to this question. One is that you build on relationship, you build something amazing, you build something that people can get really excited about and want to invest their, their life and their career in. And two, you ensure that you really understand that the value of having a diverse team and people from outside your silo and outside your experiences who might not look and think like you that you're doing something to attract those people. And valuing those things, honestly, and being public about valuing those things has allowed us to create a world-class team and we attract the most amazing people. But it's really because of the foundation of excellence, but then the acknowledgement of, hey, we wanna meet people who don't think like us. And that's, I think, maybe an undervalued secret sauce that a lot of tech organizations really need to embrace. Well, let's switch to scalability. So you mentioned earlier, right, you like to build things or do things that, that don't scale, uh, or at least starting off until you can identify the thing that needs to be scaled. So tell me a little bit about that process for you, for Thought Exchange, and, and how you kind of fought this as you grew and identified the right things to automate. So we're talking about something which is actually inherently, people wouldn't think you could scale it. So let's talk about a conversation. So a conversation is something that really doesn't scale that well. So by the time you get to five or six people in any conversation, a conversation no longer is a conversation. If you got a really great facilitator or somebody who can really create, you know, 10 people talking meaningfully together, well, now you have maybe a facilitated dialogue or something like that. But the whole idea of a discussion is that you share ideas, those ideas are considered by other people, and really interesting insights emerge that the whole group sort of move towards. So something, a story we talk about a lot in Thought Exchange is that a waiter comes up and says, what would you like to drink? And people say, I don't know, I'd like a beer. Sure, give me a beer. Yeah, I don't know, beer. And then someone says, well, it's the first sunny day of spring that's really beautiful. Don't you make great margaritas here? I'd really like a margarita. And the, someone else in the group says, ooh, that's really great. I'd also like a margarita. Yeah, you know what, me too. You know what, a round of margaritas. Am I right? Except for one person sticks to their beer, maybe. The point of that story is that the thing that didn't happen is that people don't then stop and say, sorry, you guys can't all get a margarita because you said beer six or seven times. And that's the most frequent thing that got said. And therefore, you have to stick with it. The reason I tell you that story 
the idea of a conversation actually doesn't scale. What happens is as soon as we get to 50 or 100 people, we basically ask, what do you think? First thought, best thought. And then we count up the amount of time something gets said and we put it in some sort of algorithm or machine learning or we use natural language processing. And we say this result effectively is beer. Another version of this I heard was if a steward's walking down an airplane and asking everyone wants water until they hear ginger ale. But the point is in a conversation, you can't really get at what matters to people, what's important. You can easily get at what's frequent. And so the whole nature of thought exchange actually is trying to understand how to scale something inherently non-scalable. And that's actually related to the, the book that I'm publishing through Wiley is about scaling conversations and tackling this problem of how do you actually create an outcome of a meaningfully scaled conversation with 500, 1,000 or 100,000 people when there's a few things that are really important to make a conversation a conversation. That's really cool. Um, you know, I hadn't thought about it like that. What, what's the title of the book? The title of the book is literally called Scaling Conversations. Awesome. We'll make sure and link that in the, uh, in the show notes for sure. That's really interesting to think about that a part of a conversation because you're right. I mean, you, you code something in software and you're looking for patterns or counts or something that you can learn from behavior, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that's the most important thing. That's really fascinating. I think a lot of times when we try to find a source of truth, we mistake truth for being a rock-like thing where you know, you're, you're searching the bedrock to find this sort of truth. Whereas in fact, when it comes to understanding the market, understanding the truth about you know, what your product should be doing, it's actually a moving thing. It's a lot more like a river. It's people's sense of what's important changes all the time. Every time they get more information, and so the nature of information is actually conversational. What becomes important to people changes as people learn from each other. And so we do a lot of thinking about what are those basic components? And I mean, this is the same thing in scaling software. You have to break it down. You have to say, what are the actual pieces that you need to have in order to make a conversation scalable? Well, people have to be able to share their thoughts. You have to be able to consider the thoughts of other people. You have to be able to react to them in some sort of way and say whether you agree or you disagree. And you have to be able to sort of understand which things emerge as important. And when you break those things down into components and put them into software and put events around them, it turns out you can actually parse them apart and then scale them with 10,000 people once you understand the actual elements of a conversation. And at that part, you can do some pretty fascinating things. Well, as you step out on the balcony and you look across what you've built, Thought Exchange, what are you most proud of? I think that the thing that I'm most proud of, that we're most proud of, is that we've built something for public organizations and corporations to actually harness collective intelligence, which sounds like a heady kind of a thing. But the truth as humans is that back when we were trying to find ways to grow stuff together, we had to learn how to talk to each other so we could trade with one another. And I'm pretty proud of the fact that we've had leaders in large organizations ask some pretty amazing things as we've started to build out the whole discussion management category. So some examples of that are hearing back from hundreds or sometimes thousands of people during change management and not caring about the color of the skin, the gender, the authority of that individual as thoughts are shared and rated to give a leader what's true in that moment for that group and to be able to take away all the bias that is related 
is something I'm pretty proud of. We also helped tens of thousands of people inform decisions in the public sector, you know, during schools. I have three kids and there were hundreds and hundreds of thousands, millions of parents involved in participating, sharing their thoughts back to the school districts as they made really hard decisions that were impacting health and the loss of lives and everything. And they needed a way to do that. And that's a pretty, uh, that's a pretty big thing to be a part of is how organizations go through change. And I think we can all agree, there's sure been a heck of a lot of change happening in the last uh, 12 to 18 months. So the fact that we're able to be a part of that change has been a real amazing thing, actually, for, for me personally and for the whole company. Let's flip the script a little bit. Tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it. Is this a four or five hour podcast? How long do we have? <laughs> To do this sort of thing, we've, we've made a lot of mistakes. We make a lot of mistakes in how we build software and how we go to market and how we do a lot of things. I think one of the mistakes that we made was super interesting. When we first built the product, we had this core assumption that in order for a conversation to be valuable, the identity of the person in the conversation needed to be maintained that you, Noah, needed to have your name on each thought that you shared. You also needed to have your association to how you rated thoughts so that if you said something great or if, and everyone gave you really high ratings or if you said something terrible and everyone gave you really low ratings, well, we'd need to know because you'd require either the glory or the downside of if you've said great things or if people have rated your thoughts low, etc. We built that right into the product at the start, identity in collective intelligence as essential. And really interestingly, we learned through testing with a lot of people that there's one foundational problem with that that is now so blatantly obvious that it's embarrassing, which is bias is deadly. The idea that you require people to share their name for every idea effectively means any conversation you have is very political. You're not able to actually get at the truth of what people think because people aren't willing to share that truth with you for fear of a lot of things based on their experience in a bureaucracy, based on their experience with their gender, with their skin color. We were a company that used to say, well, you know what, if you have something to say, you got to have your name behind it. Otherwise, it's just not valid. We had to learn that actually protecting people's identity is something really critical in really surprising and interesting ways. It's not just because people have criticism to share. Some of your smartest people have fascinating things to share, but you know they don't want to be seen to be sucking up to a senior person in the organization. They don't want their, their name necessarily associated with the greatest idea if they've rated it. Or if they see a thought they really don't like, they don't want to be seen to be publicly raving down people that may be a close friend of theirs in the company, but they just don't agree with them. They really like the ability to actually say, well, you know what, we agree on a lot of things, but on that idea, I'm going to give that a one star rating. Just the whole concept as an organization or as a species of the idea of protecting people's um, identity within the context of a conversation was you know, many year process that we came to the other side with a pretty firm understanding of, but certainly uh, there's all sorts of things underneath that that could have sent the company in a dramatically different direction if we weren't willing to listen. What does the future look like for the product and for your team? The future of discussion management, I think, is enormous. 
I think as organizations, one of the biggest things that happened, I believe, in the last year with the awful events of COVID, is that organizations, you know, every every event I ever went to talked about digital transformation. And all of a sudden, everybody was forced to find a way to get on a Zoom meeting or a WebEx meeting or find some way to connect digitally. As we all know, that's obvious. The thing that happened that was really unique is now because one or two people are going to be irreversibly digital in all meetings, that means every meeting is now digital. And I think that that's a fascinating thing as a company that's been distributed for 10 years. The opportunity to have all meetings create data, I think, is completely world-shaking. So I do a lot of thinking and writing about the topic of the fact that we're now networked. As far as the space for discussion technology, it's actually really hard to get your brain completely around the idea that you can have a conversation in real time in 60 languages with thousands of people around the globe and learn what they think within five minutes on any topic. That sheer power, it's just sort of imagine what you can do with that. The problem before was we'd say, hey, you can actually talk to a thousand people across the globe in real time. The technology existed before, but the network wasn't actually there. And what I mean by network is, well, I don't know how we'd actually get to all of them, or maybe not everybody is going to be able to get a link to that. Or we, we sort of typically don't communicate this way. We always do face to face. And so if we're going to have a meaningful conversation, it's got to be face to face. Now that people are comfortable conversing digitally, the idea of what's possible in scaling a conversation around the globe or around the country or around your company in real time, I think we've barely scratched the surface as far as what we can learn from one another and how we can move organizations forward. So I'm pretty optimistic on what's available for us now that we've actually started to unlock the idea of our, our totally networked organizations as, as it relates to communication. Well, let's switch to you. Who influences the way that you work? Name a, a CEO or CTO architect, really any person. Name a person that you look up to and why. I look up to a lot of people. In my work, I really look up to people who think pretty differently about how organizations should be run. I look at Carolyn Johnson, the CEO of Diversity Inc., who's really challenging people to understand that there is so much research in an organization that shows there's a nauseating amount of research that shows that more diverse teams, more diverse organizations make more profitable companies. And in Carolyn's word, and by profit, we mean make more money for shareholders and save more money then don't spend it. The idea of profitable and diversity is really important. And so champions that, that lead that understanding for people to get us to embrace why it is that we need to hear from more people are really inspirational to me. Forrest Harper is the CEO of Inroads that's helping create pathways for young people of color to have the opportunity of showing what they can do in corporate environments that removal of roadblocks as a leader to be able to help people who are extremely bright and motivated 
and have things standing in their way because of hundreds of years of systemic racism, those sort of leaders really inspire me because they, they get the value of people and they get the problems with bias. And I think that leaders need to sit up straight and listen to those people that are helping guide the understanding of organizations to say this, if you really want your organization to succeed, then you need to understand what it is to appreciate diverse points of view. You need to understand what it is to have different ideas come in and challenge your ideas. So any leader that is, is standing up and helping educate the world, I think is helping all of our businesses move forward as we start to unlock that power of, of hearing from more and more diverse people and including them in all of our workforces. Well, we talked about a mistake, but a little bit different spin. If you could go back to the beginning, what would you do differently or where would you consider taking a different approach? Yeah, that's a really good question because I'm one of these people that have made so many mistakes, but it's really hard to know exactly what uh, exactly what to do differently because I, I like where we ended, so I'd be nervous to change things. However, if I had to do a few things differently, it took us a few years to really focus in on a user that was getting a lot of value out of our platform. And it was a brave thing. So as I mentioned before, we do collective intelligence and scaling conversations for hundreds or thousands of people. And we learned maybe 10 years ago, this wasn't valued so much in the corporate environment. It was very valued by school superintendents who needed to understand their parents, their employees, and their taxpayers, how they thought and felt as they made really big financial decisions impacting them. And so we honed in on them. But something that I've learned along the way is that we should have honed in twice as strong, twice as fast to really solve a meaningful problem with a group of people and to not hedge. Because the more we actually solved a meaningful problem with a group of people, the more our software became applicable broadly to all sorts of leaders across many different sectors and verticals with completely different problems. But that idea of hedging and always thinking, well, I'm going to do a little for you, but I'm going to actually keep the door open for all my other users is something that in the early years of the company, I would have focused twice as much as we did. And we focused a fair bit. You know, if you went on Thought Exchange five or six years ago, it literally hit you with a school bus because we were helping superintendents with a really big problem. What I learned is that I would have done it twice as much. Find a, find someone who has a problem, really solve that problem for them in a way that is unmistakable, and then the scale comes naturally on the other side of that. So I suppose not not hedging is what I would say is maybe a lesson learned if I had to do it over. Well, last question, Dave. So you're getting on a plane, and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing. They're jazzed about it. They can't wait to show it off to the world. Can't wait to show it off to you right there on the plane. What advice do you give that person having gone down this road a bit? The first piece of advice that I would give is be very wary of advice from random strangers sitting next to you, especially when they sound like they know what they're doing. And I say that because I think there's a lot of people that have advice for founders and advice for, for people just starting off. And I think advice is, is not necessarily worth all that much, but I think stories are worth their weight in gold. So I guess my first like counter advice would be to listen to the stories of other founders, what mistakes they've made, listen to podcasts like this one, to understand the trials and tribulations that other founders have gone through. 
but then take that and apply it to yourself using your own smarts. That just because somebody else found a solution doing it the way they did it doesn't mean that's the way that you have to do it. Because frankly, the next generation of founders, I believe has to think very differently and do things differently in order to solve problems. And the other side of that, say that that young founder should spend a whole lot of time listening to the stories of their customer and really think about how you're helping your customer's customer so that as you're building something, you're not only solving a technical solution for your customer with some short-term need, but you're actually doing something meaningful for your customer's customer because that's where real value is created. If you can solve a problem that's actually helping an organization uh, help other people do things better. So I'd say listen for stories, connect deeply with people and be very wary of advice. How's that for advice? That's fantastic. Well, Dave, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for being on Code Story and telling the creation story of Thought Exchange. Amazing. Thanks for having me. And this concludes another chapter of Code Story. Code Story is hosted and produced by Noah Laphart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. Support the show on patreon.com slash code story for just five to 10 bucks a month. And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening.